Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you with us for uh, Political Rewind after the long Memorial Day weekend. I hope it was a great one for all of you out there. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm really glad to be plunging back into uh, politics as we start a new week here at George Public Broadcasting. Um, with us today, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Glad to have you here, Kevin. You, you had a relaxing uh, weekend uh, out of state near the beach somewhere. Uh, a very relaxing weekend, but great to be back in the action here on Political Air Rewind. Action is exactly right. Next yeah. to you, Howard Franklin, Democratic uh, strategist. Um, if you want to know how hot it is outside, go to our Facebook Live <laughs> broadcast at GPB News on Facebook, and you will see Howard Franklin ran in here at the last minute drenched. <laughs> Put me on blast, but glad to be here all the time. Are you doing all right? I'm good. Okay, I'm good. good. <laughs> Patricia Murphy is back with us. She had a career on Capitol Hill working for a couple of members of the United States Senate, some of them from Georgia, one other not. And uh, now she's writing columns for uh, everybody from Garden and Gun Magazine to Roll Call to the Daily Beast. Hi, Patricia. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here today for the show. And finally, Brian Robinson, uh, who was uh, chief of staff of uh, chief of staff? Who was communications director <laughs> for Nathan Deal during his first term as governor, and now does government relations work? Not so much partisan political consulting these days. Is that right? Yeah. What my business does is public affairs communications. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a little bit of PR, a little bit of crisis, a little bit of media training. Oh, you know, and a lot of money. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for uh, which but, I, for which I spend it all on my AJC subscription. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I do want to start the show by asking you just to give us briefly in a few sentences the words of wisdom you gave to the graduates of what school? Orangeburg Prep School in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Just about a week Friday before last, I That's think. That's right. It is my alma mater, but also the alma mater more famously of Nikki Haley. She's our ah. our famous alum. <laughs> and I said that it, most advice and commencement addresses is garbage, that if they tell you that if you find your passion, you'll never work a day in your life, that's hooey. I, I work my passion, and I have worked many, many days of my life. I've had many miserable days on the job, despite loving what I do. I said a better way of going about it is work hard, set goals, and you can be what you want to be. That doesn't mean you're going to be a billionaire or famous, however. What a bummer, Patricia. Yeah, how did that yeah. go? Yeah, I was, I was basically booed out, told never to come back. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, my typical reception, though. Yeah. <laughs> Patricia, you pointed out when we were talking about this right before going on the air that Orangeburg is a hot place these days in politics. I, yes, I literally said Orangeburg is so hot, and Brian thought I was joking. I thought, other than <laughs> the weather. I thought she misunderstood where I had been. Uh, Orangeburg, <laughs> South Carolina is, in fact, a must-stop uh, for Democratic candidates these days. Obviously, South Carolina is important. Orangeburg is especially important. Uh, there's a large African-American a school there, traditionally black um, college there. Uh, it's also the, the home district of Jim Clyburn, uh, who is the highest ranking African-American in the House, yeah. um, and also a longtime stronghold, I think, of um, of uh, Democrats. It's a traditional stop, but I've never seen more going so early than this year. It's you said really that Kamala Harris is actually there tonight? She's there tonight. She's doing an MSNBC town hall from Orangeburg uh, at 10 o'clock tonight. Okay. Uh, if, well, a little additional programming information. There you go. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's get down to it. Uh, Kevin, before we get into the topics that we're going to go into more depth on today, uh, your uh, folks broke an interesting story just a couple of hours ago on the uh, on the my AJ, on the AJC political page on the web. David Amati, who's now running the State Ethics Commission, uh, Greg Bluestein tells us, and he'll be with us tomorrow, and we'll go to it in much greater depth has issued a bunch of subpoenas going after Stacey Abrams and the organizations she uh, she worked with, that she founded for their financial records, going after Nakima Williams, the state Democratic Party chair, the newly installed Democratic Party chair, 
And the article raises some significant questions as to whether or not uh, Amadi, who is a Republican and never shied away from uh, acknowledging he is one, whether there's uh, politics at work here. Right. The story by Greg Bluestein and uh, James Salzer, they got their hands on the subpoenas that that he uh, issued. And he's after financial and uh, bank and payroll records and also wants, and I quote from the story here, all correspondence between Abrams, the Abrams campaign and left-leaning groups that registered and mobilized voters. They include the voting rights groups that Abrams helped launch and a nonprofit co founded by Senator Nakima Williams. Yeah. Um, we're not going to go into it. Howard, you are an immediate reaction, I think. <laughs> I can see it. And then we're going to move on because we're going to get into it in great detail tomorrow. Yeah, I, I think this will play out the way we expect it to. This does look like a little bit of uh, partisan posturing. And I think it's worth noting that uh, both Senator Nakima Williams and uh, uh, former Minority Leader Abrams have a long history of organizing nonprofits, leading voter registration drives. This is not something that, you know, took place overnight in the lead up to the 2018 gubernatorial race, something they both have been working at for a very long time. All right. We gave the Democrat a chance. So, uh, Brian Robinson, uh, it you, you do have to wonder, Amadi's brand new in this position. It You do have to wonder why that was the first thing he took on, was uh, issuing subpoenas about uh, against Democrats, unless he has reason to really think there's foul uh, activity involved. Look, I'm so glad you brought this up because I have actually I have walked in these shoes because in 2011, when Nathan Deal first took office, there were loads of cases that were before the cases that involved his campaign and other uh, ethics. Yeah, this is true. Reports. And all of a sudden his cases get leaped to the front of the line. And I was howling and screaming and there was no political rewind there for there to be a measured, thoughtful conversation about why this was jumping to the front of the line against Nathan Deal. Nobody cared when it was a Republican. All of a sudden, it's a Democrat, and, and we, have to, we have to answer these questions. There are long, long uh, questions raised about the organizations led by Stacey Abrams. And I know I sound more hostile than, I normally, than my normal jolly self. No, no, no you don't. Oh, okay. Uh, Who is this jolly self? (laughs) But I am just, and I'm somebody who respects Stacey Abrams and has for a long time, and I've expressed that many times on this program. But besides the AJC, there is no institution of media in this country that takes a serious look at Stacey Abrams. The AJC is as close to fair and balanced as it gets on her. And, and, and they actually take heat from the Democrats here because they play it straight. I think you're, you're forgetting. I mean, there was a, I forget how many pages, an expose of a piece written by Creative Loafing just a couple of years ago. Again, Don't know how I missed that. Don't. <laughs> Again, you're right. It's outside of your media sphere. But I, I don't, I certainly congratulate the AJC on certainly having and offering some real teeth to investigative journalism and politics here. So I don't, and I, I appreciate the point you're making. I think no matter, the, the, only, the only thing I will point out is that when Nathan Deal took office, Democrats weren't in control of the state machinery. It wasn't as if we had the AG's office or we, we were in a position to do, you know, a, a number of the things that completely unified government can do now under, under the control of Republicans here. You, you really will have a great show tomorrow on this, won't you, Bill? And everyone well, should subscribe to the AJC. Well, I was going to suggest <laughs> the story is up online right now at AJC.com. You want to weigh in before we move on, Patricia? Uh, I would just say it's extremely dangerous at the state level and the national level once uh, the entire venue of review, including ethics, the judicial process, um, subpoenas, if they begin to look political and people can dismiss them, um, I think a way to have this look less political is if it wasn't the first thing out of the gate. If you added it to other um, investigations that seemed less partisan, I think any average bear on the street would say, Oh, the first thing you're doing is go- is investigating the person who lost the last election. Um, if I don't know this person, if I don't know the ethics chief, which most people wouldn't know, um, what's my immediate reaction to that? Is this payback? Yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I'm not even going to say maybe it is. I I don't know. Um, there have been questions raised about her organizations. That's also not uh, breaking news. But I think uh, it'd be much better to 
weight on this uh, to add to some uh, other investigations that don't seem at all political? I think what, I think what Patricia's saying is, is very fair. And I think the timing is something that could be considered. I do want to point out that the board that determines what cases they take is bipartisan. So it's not just okay. one person. One appointing making that decision. All right. Thank you all. I'm, I'm glad we got a little uh, discussion in on that. But yes, Kevin, you're right. Tomorrow, Bluestein will be here. We'll talk about this in uh, more depth. Maybe we'll know a little bit more. He's still, he and uh, James Salzer are still digging into that story. So maybe there'll be more that we can yeah, talk sure about on tomorrow's show. Yeah, I'm sure they'll have something big in the paper tomorrow, too. Uh, a lot of uh, abortion news that relates to the courts uh, right now. Uh, the most immediate one was a ruling that was issued by the Supreme Court of the United States this morning in regard to an Indiana case brought by the ACLU. Patricia, I'm glad you're nodding because you all can help me walk through exactly what this case was about. The First of all, the court essentially issued two rulings in regard to the Indiana law. One of the statutes, and by the way, these were signed by Mike Pence when he was governor of Indiana. One of the rulings had the court agreed that Indiana had a right to a law which required the proper burial of fetal remains. Essentially, the law said that fetal remains deserve the same respectful treatment that a person would uh, at burial. And, and the court said, yes, we agree with that decision. But then they did not, they refused to overturn a different uh, statute in Indiana. Under Governor Pence, Indiana passed a law which outlawed abortions which took place because of race, gender of the fetus. The uh, court, the appeals court in that one uh, said that that law was invalid, and the Supreme Court today issued a ruling saying we're not going to overturn it. In other words, it is, it is perfectly fine right now, the court said, to let that appeals court stand. You can have an abortion on the basis of sexual, uh, the gender, the sexual characteristics, and uh, the race. Also, I think the viability of the fetus. If I got this pretty this, much the way dis- you understand it, was sex it. Of, the, of the of the fetus and whether or not it has a disability. I and think the that's race. right. And disability. The race. And I want to say one thing as we debate all of this abortion stuff today. Can, can we at least stipulate that no one's mind will be changed by right, anything right. <laughs> that anyone has done today? But there are some pretty interesting things coming up, including this court. Case. Okay. Well, I want to start with the one that has to do with burial and, and take uh, uh, each of you uh, uh, give each of you a chance at this. Because what I thought was fascinating about that was it is certainly not a personhood uh, statute, but the fact that the court goes along with an Indiana law that says a fetus deserves the same proper respect at burial as a person does sort of start edging you in that direction, doesn't it, Patricia? Well, I think it does, Um, although there's also an element, I think, of of common sense maybe that comes into this. I mean, obviously those are human cells. Uh, There's certainly, I don't want to sort of get into the entire abortion debate, but I think the fact that the Supreme Court first decided to hear this case and then uh, took two different approaches uh, leaves us, uh, I think, able to assume that the Supreme Court will hear one of these abortion cases that come up, uh, but we can't know how it's going to rule. Um, it was important to me that this was a seven to two decision yep. with only two authored opinions, uh, one upholding this and one dissenting um, from Justice Ginsburg. And the other justices, I think, have deliberately remained silent, um, waiting to see exactly what case it is that they choose to hear, uh, what the nature of the debate is. Um, but I think that this tells us uh, something that people had assumed but not known, um, that the Supreme Court will likely weigh in on one of these uh, uh, abortion restrictions that come in. Uh, Clarence Thomas actually had a, weighed in on this. He was the other justice who had uh, uh, wrote uh, about this, and he said essentially that uh, birth control and abortion from the beginning were promoted as means of effectuating eugenics, and that he finds it offensive that, uh, that we should allow that to move forward. So let's talk about, uh, about what Patricia just said, Brian. Uh, 
I think the fact the court decided not to take action on this is exactly what Patricia says. They are starting to open the door to take up the cases, case of Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama. This is coming perhaps in the next session, yes? In the next session of the general of the, no, uh, of the, the Supreme of the Court, Supreme Court. Yeah, oh, something's going to head that way because you know what you're seeing right now with the Mississippi case where the judge struck that down a law very similar to Georgia's. Of course, Alabama's law goes even further than either one of those. You can assume that will be struck down. These courts have to do that because that is the precedent. That is the law of the land as it stands. Only the Supreme Court can change it. And of course, the theory is that. Adding Kavanaugh is going to change the vote count there, and it could alter what states are allowed to do. It may return this power to the states eventually. So Georgia may end up being that test case. Uh, You know, as a Georgia taxpayer, I am more than happy for Mississippi or Alabama to pay for those (laughs) millions of dollars in court fees since this is already there. But, yeah, something's coming. I, I totally agree with Patricia and Brian. I think this might politically, though, become a case of the car that caught the dog. I mean, I just think about both the timing of uh, the Supreme Court hearing these cases and what it would do for hotly contested um, presidential election as well as all the reelects for uh, members of Congress and U.S. Senate up and down the ballot. And if if it you know if in fact Brian's correct and. President Trump's newly constituted, newly conservative court somehow overturns Roe versus Wade. I just I I can't see a scenario where Republicans aren't ultimately punished at the ballot box for getting behind these decisions. So it's to me feels like maybe winning a battle, but absolutely winning or losing a war. Yeah. Well, of course, we're, we're just guessing here, right? I mean, in the end, who knows what the Supreme Court will do, whether they'll take these cases. I mean, this decision today shows they're, they're you know, tempted to sidestep some yeah. things as well. Um, I still think that there's a possibility that John Roberts will cling to his institutionalism and be very concerned about what Howard just said, which is that the court be seen as so politicized and so in the middle of politics that it loses its stature. All right. With that in mind, Patricia, if let's take what Kevin is saying and move it forward. If, in fact, that is Robert's position, and we've seen examples of that recently, that he the institution matters enormously to him, um, what's the political calculus of the court deciding in their fall term leading into the 2020 elections if they were to take this case up in the fall or winter, a ruling on this would be released in the months before, right before the Democratic and Republican national conventions, before uh, the elections. It, it, does the court have any reasoning, about thinking about whether you want to take on an issue that is that hot in an election year? I think John Roberts uh, does think about those things. I think he is such an institutionalist. The reputation of the court and the legitimacy of the court is almost his highest um, duty, in his opinion. I think most people who watch the court believe that. Um, Although there is also just the reality that some of these laws take effect very soon. Georgia's wouldn't take effect until January of 2020. Others are set uh, to go into effect sooner than that. So there is uh, certainly the there's the balance of when do we want to weigh in on this, if we want to weigh in on this, uh, especially and, and re- while Ginsburg is still on the court. Yeah, right. Um, versus states where this goes into effect and begins to really change people's lives. Well, the because, because, in fact, what they did with this case was nothing. The Indiana case. Right. Right. They essentially, I mean, well, so they did act how- on the burial issue, and then they essentially said, we're not going to weigh in. The appeals court decision right. will stand. But on- the temptation to not do anything, I think, would be powerful to let, you know, let the lower courts follow the precedent. Of, of Roe and just say, we're not doing anything with this because it's if not like it's going to go away. Follow, yeah. If the lower courts follow precedent, yeah. if they don't, you have millions of women right. living under a different regime. I, I have to add this quickly. The panel today is four men and one woman. This is the general makeup of almost every state legislature in the country. This is the general makeup of the U.S. Congress, and it's about the makeup of the Supreme Court. The yeah. Supreme the Court is a little bit more. Today. Yes, yeah, the that's, pan- that's what I'm yeah. saying. The panel today, it's me and all you guys. These uh, these laws will affect me. 
And that's what I want people to understand as a part of this conversation. Women have all sorts of opinions on abortion, on the right to life, on the right to have an abortion. It's incredibly maddening for all of these conversations and decisions to be made and dominated by men. Brian? Um, and, but- and we're voters. And, well, you know, yeah. so there you go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> fair point. At it. Um, so do you think we should continue talking about this? Or would you suggest that it. we don't talk? <laughs> no, no, seriously. I, think, I absolutely think we should talk about it because that's the reality. Yeah. That's the reality. I also think also... Uh, you four gentlemen are um, all uh, well-informed of, of the situation, and you are all well-informed in your own political opinions, and they're valid. But something you have to remember is just the incredible disproportionate level of this conversation and who really makes the decisions versus who is affected by the decisions directly. So, yeah, I, I hear that. So, Brian, uh, we know the Mississippi law has now been blocked. Uh, the Ohio law has now been blocked. We don't know what's going to happen in Alabama, and we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia because ACLU, which says they're going to file suit, feels they can take their time since the L- uh, Georgia law isn't set to go into effect until January. But Patricia makes a really important point. So far, every court that's taken up this issue has ruled to block these laws from going into effect. But if you have a situation in which one or two states have passed these laws, let's say Louisiana passes theirs, and in, and in those states, the lower courts rule the other way on this, you're going to have this situation in which abortion presumably is legal in some places and not legal in others until the Supreme Court does choose to act. That was your point, yes. right, Brian? I don't, I don't see that happening. I see, I see uniformity in these decisions. You know, one of the judges in this Indiana case uh, voted with the majority, but said he had reservations. You know, he wanted to give Indiana a little more authority in in his decision making on this. But the precedent was clear that basically in that that, that first trimester before viability, a woman has an almost unlimited right to, to an abortion. So that was that judge's opinion. And this is somebody who had reservations. And so I don't think there's going to be some district court level judge who goes out there and does it and and goes against that stream. I think what you might see, and I haven't seen a law that would fit this bill, but it may be some new side issue that we're not thinking about. Like the burial remains is something to me is a new side issue that is not really typically part of this conversation that might get somebody to have an original novel ruling. But when it comes to abortion before viability, the precedent is the precedent, and only the Supreme Court can change it. So I think this is going to go on for a long time. I agree with Howard that there will be tremendous political repercussions. Look, if the complete ban or the heartbeat bill ever takes effect in either state and it becomes a national issue— Democrats are going to be mobilized because people who lose on major issues become mobilized. Look what Roe v. Wade did for conservatives. It mobilized them. So this will be a pendulum swing there to some degree. But I'll tell you this. One thing that has surprised me is I thought Republicans in Georgia may take a hit on the heartbeat bill. And I think what the numbers have seen have shown, including what the AJC polled, is that it's a 50-50 issue. There are people on both sides, women and men. It's not all women aren't on one side of this and all men on the other side. Uh, so I, I, I want to add some nuance to, to that. But part of the change is because of the technology. And as a parent of a two-and-a-half-year-old who's always struggled with this issue, I know what I saw on that screen when my baby was seven weeks along. I know what I saw. And I do think, Bill, I agree we're not going to change minds. But I think the technology has changed people's perspective. All right. I, I, I get that. I'm not sure I want to relitigate the actual uh, uh, questions about whether this, this uh, you know, how to make a decision about when, a, when a, a fetus becomes a human and that sort of thing. The courts are certainly going to get into that. Uh, Howard, we got to get to a break, but I do want to give you one chance to say something before we do. And we're talking about the, we're continuing this conversation. I I just, you know, I I don't know that there's a whole lot more to add to it. I do believe that I appreciate the nuance that Brian is offering to the discussion, but obviously those sharp edges will fall away in the context of a campaign. I think the only numbers that will matter are the ones that we see at the ballot box and whether or not this is a jump ball um, of an issue. I think the people who, as you, I think mentioned already, who will respond to this are the ones who will turn out Uh, The Republican majority. All right. I got to get to a break. Uh, Patricia, I do have to make a point. 
uh, because I think you you said something. You're right. You were the only woman here today. I want to point out that the last show we did before Memorial Day was last Friday. That show had a panel of three women and one man. Um, so our decision on whether we have and, and the reason I want to mention this is because we get this a lot from our from people who follow us. We we are very fortunate to have people who are willing to come in here and disrupt their schedules to be with us. Uh, you know, none of you gets paid to do this. The makeup of our panel is often determined by who is available, when they're <laughs> available, not whether we are able to get a man, a woman, uh, whatever. My, my criticism is never of you or these panelists, and I and I love all of you deeply. I, my criticism <laughs> is of the state legislatures yeah. and the makeup yeah. of who okay. makes these decisions. Hey, I, I just found out I'm wanna, not getting paid. <laughs> I, 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 I did want to. I did want to point out we talked extensively about this subject last Friday. With a panel of three women and one guy. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with more. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. As border agents face a continued surge of legal and illegal immigration, there's also been a crackdown on volunteers who offer aid to migrants. It is life or death here. A decision to not give somebody food or water could lead to that person dying. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, a rise in people being charged for helping migrants. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Howard Franklin, Brian Robinson, Patricia Murphy, and uh, Kevin Riley are uh, with us today. So, um, well, let's, can we move on? Everybody want to add any last thing about what we've seen with the Mississippi law being blocked, with the Supreme Court uh, today taking very little action in terms of Indiana, or are we all set to move on? Want to move on? Let's go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Abortion is um, like my least favorite topic because it's a tough topic. because it's just it, people are so passionate about it on both sides, and it's just and um, we just seem to. What's frustrating about the topic is that we're in this fifty-year cycle now. I yeah. mean, it's just yeah. and it just never seems to change too much. Well, you know, okay, so Patricia, oh good, there is <laughs> something more to say about that. So Brian Robinson. Uh, and Kevin Riley both have said, oh, we're not going to change minds. We get into this cycle and, you know, but it was it was a decision made by the Republican lead by the governor of the state and by Republican leaders in the state to renew um, a uh, an efforts to block abortion as completely as possible. These are issues which we all well know were avoided by legislatures in this state for a very long time because people recognized they were going to be entirely disruptive. Well, I think sometimes to disrupt is the goal yeah. uh, on both sides. Um, and I think that uh, Brian Kemp said he would do this, yeah. and Brian Kemp was elected. Um, he, this is not a surprise, and I think his supporters appreciate it very much. Um, I think people who didn't vote were warned it, this would happen. I think people, uh, though, have gotten, especially um, people in this sort of not not so sure how they feel about the whole issue, had gotten into a place of um, believing it would never change. And I think that many young women believe this would never change. Many young women didn't think these kinds of bills would come forward and be approved. Um, and even still, I think there's an assumption that Supreme Court won't act and won't take these rights away from women. But at one, at, at what point is it going? Are people going to say, "Oh, I, wow, I, I guess it did change"? You, you know. So I think it's. Um, uh, but Brian Kemp was very clear that he wanted to do this, and Absolutely. he's certainly living up to that It goes all the way back to Newt Gingrich defining wedge issues. This is the yeah. ultimate wedge issue. And it's it a remains mobilizing. so. It's a mobilizing issue. Absolutely. But you know, one thing that's interesting to build on what Patricia is saying is the largest voter group in America today is the millennial generation, which I think Howard may be the only millennial. In, <laughs> 90 million strong, right? In the room. And uh, <laughs> I'm Gen X, you know, we're, we're sort of like squeezed 
in between these two giant generations. But millennials are more pro-life than baby boomers. And I, I think that technology issue that I was discussing may be part of it. But the other thing about millennials is they were born long after Roe v. Wade. And so it was not this big disruptor for them. It is all they've ever known. And I do think that you expect the status quo will, will never change when it's all you've ever known. And so those are two things colliding right now. A millennial generation that's more pro-life than previous generations and a millennial generation that hasn't been tested on the issue yet because they haven't faced a decision yet. Brian, I want to I want to push you on the issue a little bit. So I'm sure you read my column this weekend, but in case Never you didn't, um, <laughs> I, I wrote about all these horrific cases we we've had of children being killed or abused by their parents. We've yeah. had a real rash of them in there. We have very difficult to cover, very disturbing to read, and I wrote about why it's so important to bring them to light. Among the comments I hear from people is, you know, Georgia cares about babies until they're born. Mm-hmm. What about that line of attack that Democrats often point at Republicans? Is Why not fund defects? Why not do a better job with, with pre-K? Why not really, really invest in young people instead of leaping on the abortion issue all the time? I mean... I know I'm setting you up here. This is like lobbying a soft, you know, a, a yeah, curveball over the plate yeah. for you. But yeah. I do think that's a powerful point of view. It's a powerful point of view because Democrats are allowed to make arguments that are never rebutted by facts. And let me do that. And thanks for the opportunity. And wait, fact, wait, wait. Democrats are. I want to make oh, sure that sinks oh, it's in. It's so true. It is so true. They can say whatever they want. <laughs> like Stacey Abrams, uh, the election was stolen. I really won. Okay, yeah, sure. That sounds right to me. That's what she gets. I, okay. That's what she gets. It's <laughs> maybe you've heard of a guy named President Donald Trump. Maybe I'll, I'll let you finish. He won too. Responding. <laughs> he won too. But we're going to spend millions of dollars defending this abortion law, even under. That's the, true. Yeah. And we we have we have universal free pre K. We have we spend ten thousand dollars per public school student how much is enough we have a hugely funded defects that that and, and look it took a hit during the great recession like everything else did it was one of governor deal's priorities as we were rebuilding the state budget in the intervening years lowering uh caseloads raising caseworker salaries hiring more I would, case I would workers. take a slightly different we've tact hired, i don't think it's just about the money 150 new caseworkers this year alone i don't think it's just about the money though i think but, it's but about that the was policy the question. decision well the question I, was about that I, I i will i will slightly modify the, question, like the question just to was say more general and you took the money. Yeah, absolutely. I think think absolutely the money matters. But I think policy decisions that Republicans have made when they've been in charge as governors, as members of the Senate, the president also speak to the same sort of nihilism um, that it's preaching. It's important that the life of of unborn children is protected, but it's not important in any other phase of uh, humanity, right? That those same even thoughts. Again, we we talk about police brutality. We talk about black Black Lives Matter. There are a number of other issues that wouldn't cost another dime that Republican leaders wouldn't get up for and, and cast a vote in support of. So are, it's not I just. All right, wait. I want to. I want to. I'm, I'm beginning to feel like this car is being steered in a direction. <laughs> it was. I, I feel like we're about to go off a cliff that I really don't want to go off right now, and and we're heading off in a in a direction. It may be worth a, a conversation, but. I, but at some point down the line, but with your uh, permission, I'd like to move on to another subject. Thank you, Brian. Um, Patricia, the uh, House doesn't, they're back after their Memorial Day uh, work district uh, week. Uh, the House votes tonight, I think their first votes may start as early as 6.30 tonight, if they vote at all tonight, but they are coming back into session. And one of the things we're waiting to see is whether or not an effort to get a unanimous consent resolution on the uh, issue of emergency relief funds for states like Georgia, which is now passed the Senate, can pass the House on a unanimous relief, uh, a, a unanimous consent vote. It was blocked on Friday, and we don't know whether it's going to be blocked again. But uh, apparently, the uh, conservatives in the House are ready to stop it again and insist that there not be a vote until next week when the House is back in full session. Uh, I don't have any uh, secret intel on exactly what's going to happen. I would uh, 
I would not be surprised if it was stopped again. I don't know where Chip Roy is right now. Chip Roy is the yeah. congressman who stopped the it. The Texas before, congressman, yes. Right, who stopped it before on a unanimous consent decree. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if it was that important to Chip Roy on Friday. It wouldn't still be important to him on Tuesday. Um, but I think once Congress comes back into session, it will get passed because this has the very strong support of Republicans in the Senate who need this money to go through. And David Perdue is one of those senators um, who, had, who played a very real role in getting the president to um, release his objections to this bill. And so I think once they're all back in town, I think it will go through very easily, which is why it's a shame that it had to be stopped at all. I I think that's right. I think Kevin uh, David Perdue can take a lot of credit uh, for last week uh, going to the president and saying, please drop your demands for uh, to add money for border security uh, uh, to this bill. Uh, please, we've resolved the Puerto Rico issue of giving money to Puerto Rico to deal with the disaster they've experienced. And he finally had the president agreeing with him. And then Chip Roy uh, refuses to go along and apparently expresses the will of the Freedom Caucus in the House. So as Patricia says, whether it's Chip Roy or another member of the Freedom Caucus, it's possible and probably likely that a unanimous consent resolution will fail again the next time they bring it up, whether it's tonight or tomorrow. And it will be June 3rd before the full House meets again and can vote on this. It's been one of the most senseless things, I think. And again, the kind of thing that so frustrates voters that everybody's in favor of this. In fact, I mean, it's even more important to me personally today after all of the tornadoes in Ohio of yesterday in my old town of Dayton, Ohio. And uh, I hope that if people there need help, they're not going to have to go on and put up with something for this long that everyone seems to agree on, right? It is excruciatingly, painfully (laughs) frustrating. And, uh, you know, those having been through South Georgia after the storms last fall, it was it was devastating, dude. Two billion dollars in crop losses alone, and these farmers down there are living day to day at this juncture. It is reckless and irresponsible, and it's just one more example of how broken Washington well, is. Well, that's what I was going to say, Howard. This is why people hate Washington now. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. And the difficult part here, the parse through, is that everyone is beating the drumbeat for what should be happening, and, and yet the action still hasn't taken place. I, I, I think most people who are casual observers of what's happening in the Capitol don't really have a way to figure out what's happening or what the what's actually stalling things. And so, you know, um, unfortunately, we, I think everyone kind of gets painted with a broad brush here. Well, the other thing, too, I mean, I think if you're just a regular person in the country and, and you actually dig into that story and you're like, well, wait a minute. Everybody went home for the holiday before yeah. they had to vote. I don't get to leave my job no, before exactly. I'm done. Well, you know, the House already passed would, yeah, it. The House they passed have already it. passed right. it, and right. the Senate passed it needs to ping back to the House. Right. What I will bookmark for the future is I think everybody agrees on disaster aid. Yes, it's coming. It will happen. It might be a week later. Why? That's annoying, but it is coming. I think the larger question for these farmers are the tariffs going on and the effect that those tariffs are having on the exact same farmers, uh, the soybean farmers, the peanuts, pecans, um, just about anything you can think of are being affected by the fact that their largest, in many cases, destination for their crops is China and the tariffs are having a huge effect on them. We know disaster aid is coming. We don't know what the weather is going to be, but we don't have any idea what's going on with the tariffs. I think that's a major, major problem looming out there. You know, especially since for a period of time, the administration was trying to uh, convey the message that a deal with China was in the works, looked like it was going to be resolved relatively quickly. And now, as the markets reflected in the aftermath of the recognition that it is not going to be worked out quickly, that this could go on for a very long period of time. And, and you know, Brian, as long as we're talking about that, the question becomes, uh, you know, we have Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue uh, now announcing the administration is putting billions of dollars into money that will go directly to farmers this time uh, to help compensate them for the losses over the tariffs. You're not hearing a great reaction from the agriculture community. I suppose the money is welcome, but there's a sense that this is not the way to resolve our problem. 
I guess it kind of depends on what sources you go to. And, of course, they did this last year, too, with a $12 yes. billion dollar right. appropriation back then. And there was a story in the New York Times last week about some Wisconsin farmers who said the $12 billion really helped. It kind of got us over the hump. Yes, we're hurting. The tariffs are hurting. The trade war is hurting. But we know the president is fighting a battle that needs to be fought. You know, I will be the first to say I am a free trading Republican. I do not believe in tariffs. I believe in low prices for consumers in America. And I was very resistant to what the president was doing. One thing that I have found interesting, and people say that he's not a bipartisan leader, but one thing that he has done in this case is he has brought Republicans who are free traders and Democrats who hate him into agreement with him on this, that China is a bully, that China is cheating, that Americans are being robbed, and and people are, are behind him on this, Republicans and Democrats. And even I have come around that China is rigging the system, and we've got to stand up and fight and take the pain in the short term. The other thing I think that has been interesting about his message is if you if you read closely what he said, part of it is, well, we're asking these farmers to sacrifice some for a greater good, their short-term sacrifice, you know, which is not normal for a politician, because no. normal for a politician is to promise you everything will be fine all the time and never actually deal with something. So yeah, I, I would just tackle Whether it works or not, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I would tack a little bit on to what Brian said. I, I agree. I do think he's called attention uh, onto the world stage for particular despots and leaders. I think the problem uh, the Democrats and I think others, independents, will also uh, see and latch on to that is that he kind of picks and chooses who he'd like his bully to be, right? I think that there are plenty of abuses in other countries that he's been fine to let slide or to continue to do business with or to you know host multiple summits with and, and, and lend the United States credibility to these leaders, even though plenty of things happen in those countries that our leaders do not agree with. And I think it's, it's, it's difficult to understand our standing as the world's police or that this great force for good when you get to kind of pick and choose who you're friendly with, even if a number of those folks are All also right. doing bad things. I got it. Got, you got last comment? You look like you wanted to say something, Patricia. Uh, uh, well, I don't want to go on too long. I think the problem with China in particular is that they are very uneven in how they are um, abusing the system. I think that they are a wonderful destination for farmers. Right. They are totally abusive of the tech sector, uh, but to approach the entire country with one set of tariffs becomes very problematic. Okay, um, let's do this. Let's get a final break out of the way. And when we come back, I want to talk about a column that you uh, wrote. It's been a couple of weeks now, but we haven't seen you since the column was uh, <laughs> came out on roll call. So let's do that when we get back. Okay, okay Patricia, this is Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, helping your kids survive and thrive in their college years. We talk with psychologist B. Janet Hibbs and psychiatrist Anthony Rostain about the challenges of parenting one of the most stressed out generations of teens. Hibbs helped her son navigate his way through severe depression and anxiety. Their book is called The Stressed Years of Their Lives. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. My name is Dave Pauley. I'm the executive director of the Georgia Lions Lighthouse Foundation. The Lighthouse provides vision and hearing services for uninsured and underinsured Georgians in all 159 counties in the state. We underwrite with GPB because we cover the entire state on GPB. The benefit we get from underwriting is access to a broad network of listeners. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Oh. Okay. We're back on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, you wrote a column for Roll Call that I think has been out for a couple of weeks now, but but we haven't had a chance to talk to you. And I think you posted it at a time when we thought maybe there was going to be an infrastructure uh, bill of some sort. I loved the headline, today I'm getting boring. Please, Congress, join me. You know what I'm about to do? Write about infrastructure. <laughs> Talk to us about your column. Well, Kevin Riley didn't like my lead, and I I actually agree with the non-retrospect. <laughs> wow. He's a great editor. I yeah. mean, what can I say? Yeah. Um, well, so my point of uh, writing that column, every week is supposed to be Infrastructure Week in the Trump administration. Right. And guess what? We're about to do infrastructure. It never happens because something 
horrible or terrible or wonderful happens and and then we're all distracted. Uh, so it really was about to be Infrastructure Week. Um, and I wanted to really point to a really important document that's been making the rounds on Capitol Hill, which is about the really uh, dangerous and disturbing state of American infrastructure. And uh, there's a group of um, engineers uh, that looks at infrastructure and sort of assesses it um, every year. And uh, this year, the infrastructure around the United States gets a D. Uh, Transit has a D minus. Anybody in Washington or New York can tell you how uh, scary it is when your train stops for no reason. Uh, uh, transit, I think, in other, in other states just isn't happening. A lot of that has to do with funding for it. Um, air traffic control, all of us should be concerned. The level of the air traffic control infrastructure and its computer systems is rated at a D. Um, all of this takes money. There are a lot of things the states can do, but paying for all this is not one of them, and coordinating it is also not one of them. The federal government has to act. Congress and the president have to work together. In this case, it's frustrating because the president and Democrats in the House actually agree on it, um, but there's so many personality uh, conflicts getting in the way. I think this week they were supposed to talk about infrastructure, or rather last week, and instead it devolved into, you're crazy, no, you're crazy, no, you're crazy. You know, so nothing is happening on infrastructure. And uh, every so often, I like to point out that while uh, while the clown shows in town, and I mean that uh, to both parties, uh, you know, the rest of the world is trying to get on with its lives. And, yeah, and this it, is an area of concern for me. I apologize for interrupting you. Uh, you point out at the end of your paragraph in which you cite all those uh, grades for various parts of our infrastructure. You say, as you drive home today, try not to think that 9% of bridges in the country are structurally deficient or that in West Virginia, that number spikes to 19%. Bill, I was in South Carolina this weekend, and then they closed one of the bridges from Charleston to, I think, Sullivan's Island, because supposedly the heat created some problems there. But, I mean, the argument for interest, to me for infrastructure is unassailable, especially at a time of cheap money. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this idea of we're, we don't want a deficit spend, we don't want a deficit spend, except when we want a deficit spend, you know? And, and I just think if we don't get this done now, we may be setting the country on a course for a long period of time where it won't be possible because money's never really never been cheaper. Yeah, I, I think I agree with everything that's been said. I was um, spending some time a couple weeks ago with the new general manager of Renew Atlanta, and we were talking about Atlanta's uh, deficit in terms of uh, underground infrastructure. And he said that the number could be easily between, it's been reported at a billion, but easily could be $2 billion. I think even if we're talking about the conservative numbers, 9%, 19%, if you're in a bustling metropolis, economies booming, tons of Fortune 500s, and we have the same issue, it certainly is an issue around the country. I, and we're certainly looking for a, a, a solution. Look, this is not to segue into one of my pet issues because I'm with Patricia and Kevin and Howard. I, this is something we, we have to do to build the economy of the future. Here's one of my concerns, though, is that I do have a worry about the deficit. And this is why we need entitlement reform, because Medicare, Medicaid are 70-something percent of the budget now, and it's crowding out infrastructure spending, it's crowding out education spending, it's crowding out the ability to do things like build the Golden Gate Bridge, to build the Hoover Dam, to deepen the Port of Savannah. Those things are projects that we undertook pre-Great Society, and our ability to do them now is less and less. We are so much more advanced than we were in 1920, and we can do less because the money's not there. Yeah. But but I do, Patricia, want to take issue with one point that Brian is with this point that Brian is making. What, what Brian is assuming, you know, when when Trump blew up this meeting with uh, Pelosi and Schumer last week that was supposed to be about infrastructure, uh, Democrats uh, charged that the reason he blew it up was that he hadn't been able to come up with the trillions of dollars necessary for infrastructure. Brian's uh, assumption that the only place to get that money is from entitlements is not necessary. I mean, there are other creative ways to look at this issue beyond just blaming it on what he thinks of as the liberal state, I think. Well, Democrats would like to go back to um, the uh, Obama tax levels. I think they would like to have seen uh, not so much money go out the door in terms of corporate tax cuts and high-end tax cuts. That's their argument. Uh, I think there is a third way. It doesn't always have to be government funding. Uh, It can be... um, 
there, there could be private money that's brought yeah. into it. Democrats have a huge problem with that, yeah. depending on what the private sector money wants to do. Well, that's what Trump talked about done. first was public-private partnership. Yeah. I think there the has Republicans to be a more rule out a way. gasoline national gasoline tax. Some as Republicans well. have. I mean, Not even all Georgia even didn't Georgia uh, pass uh, increase its gasoline tax to uh, fund fund transportation yeah. a billion dollars a year under the leadership of of. The last administration, was it not? The, the, the last administration <laughs> led to improve Georgia's infrastructure, yes. All right. So uh, I'm going to recommend uh, if, if we uh, – Tom Faust, can we post a link to Patricia's column from Roll Call so people can read it? Thank you on our social media. And Kevin Riley uh, had a column in the Sunday paper that we'll post a link to as well. Um, we're going to – we'll talk more about, about this subject. In, it, I just really wanted you to get those statistics out there about the grades. It's outrageous. Thank Thanks, you Bill. for doing that. Well, sure. All right. One last thing, because uh, I teased it at the very top of the show. So right now in New York at the Public Theater, which is one of the most prestigious uh, nonprofit theaters in the country. They're the theater company that does Shakespeare in the Park in Central Park every summer. They open their season, and they just went into preview the other night, with uh, Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. Kenny Leon, the Tony Award-winning director who has uh, started his career here in Atlanta, is directing that show. And uh, just happens my 22-year-old daughter is working uh, at the Delacorte Theater, at the public theater on it. And um, she pointed out to us the other day something I can finally talk about publicly because audiences are in the theater. Kenny Leon has set this play in contemporary times. There is a reference in Much Ado about one of the characters coming from Aragon. Kenny realized, learned, that there's actually a town in northwest Georgia, I think Paulding County, called Aragon. He is, so what he's done is he has set the play in Aragon, Georgia, in modern <laughs> times. It's an all-African-American cast, and so the play is about uh, uh, African-Americans who are doing well financially. But here's why we talk about it in Political Rewind, Kevin Riley. On the sides of this house, that is the set at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park, there's Stacey Abrams 2020, <laughs> two sides. A political side. And I called Kenny, Kenny yesterday, Polk County, uh, Tom point, uh, House points out, Polk County is where Aragon is. Uh, I called Kenny yesterday, so why Stacey Abrams? Are you promoting her for president? He said, no, I wanted a contemporary feel and this play is about a war for our values, the values we believe in and respect. And so he thought it would be a great idea to have Stacey Abrams uh, for 2020 up there. I said, for what office, Kenny? He said, no, no, I don't know. I just <laughs> wanted uh, He called Stacey and asked her permission if he could uh, put her name on the set. And she, of course, said yes. And my daughter tells me Stacey's now coming to see the show, I think, week after <laughs> next year. I just thought that was a fun. That's Great. little item to point out. Well, that puts it right on the front pages, doesn't it? I, you know, couple, mm-hmm. remember that a couple of years ago, right after Trump was elected, Shakespeare in the Park opened with the production of Julius Caesar. Remember, Julius Caesar gets stabbed to death multiple times in the middle of that play, and they dress the character and put a wig on him to look like Donald Trump, which is a real political problem for the public theater. <laughs> this isn't quite as uh, subversive. So I thought that was fun. We'll post a picture of the set uh, so you can see Stacey Abrams 2020. That's it. We're out of time for today's show. Patricia Murphy, Brian Robinson, Howard Franklin, Kevin Riley. Thank you for a lively conversation. Um, we'll be back again tomorrow at 2 o'clock with another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then.